Hey everyone. We just wanted to say we're sending lots of love and warmth your way. It's hard to believe how things have changed since we recorded this episode in February, and to that end, we've edited out some specifics about performances planned during this period. You can always hear the full uncut conversation on Patreon, and we'll keep you updated on when Bridget's shows have new dates. Also, you may notice a shift in audio during the recommendations. Because it's so critical that we all hashtag stay the f*** home right now, Daniel recorded his recommendations on his cell phone. We're working on getting remote setups going so that we can keep recording the final episodes of the season, and we so appreciate your understanding as we all navigate this together. Be safe, wash your damn hands, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Wooden O. What's up, guys? Today, we are featuring Bridget Bowes, who is not only the master of movement for Rude Grooms, where she's choreographed dances and jigs and weird movement death cocktails for productions including Much Do About Nothing, The Wish of Edmonton, Romeo and Juliet, Twelfth Night, and The Changeling. She also runs Guilty Pleasures Cabaret as an accomplished dancer and yoga teacher and fitness instructor and all-around badass. Yeah. Welcome Bridget Bowes to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Wow, what an intro. I was just doing the mental math as he was reading those off. I think that would mean that the only thing you haven't choreographed for us would be the Shakespeare hunt. That's right. Yeah. 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 Did you even know about the Shakespeare hunt? Okay. That's because it was the secret Shakespeare hunt. Right. For those of you keeping track, the secret Shakespeare hunt may be coming back in a not-so-secret way in 2020. Mm-hmm. That sounds Wild. super fun. Ooh, <laughs> Yeah. So you've got all kinds of stuff coming up. Yeah. So as Monty mentioned, I direct and produce Guilty Pleasures Cabaret with a team of fabulous dancers and singers. And we have monthly shows in New York. At the beginning of the year, we had the pleasure of performing in a showcase at Lincoln Center. So that was a big old bucket list for wow. everyone involved. Mm, yeah. Then we are kind of back to our monthly shows in New York. So we kind of bop around venues, but we're generally at the duplex or 54 below. And how'd this come about? Ooh, that's a good story. So I moved to New York City like 11 years ago, and I came not right after college, but shortly after college. And it was one of those things that I never I never really dreamed that I would come here. I kind of thought that it was out of my reach. And then life sort of like moved me here. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose, so I'll go. And I really thought that I would come here for like two years and like maybe do a cruise ship and then like piece back to Colorado where I'm from. And I fell in love with the city and I just felt, really felt like I was home here and started to make a life here. For me, when I was younger, my dream was to travel and dance. I would see all the Broadway shows with my mom that came through Colorado. And I'd always think like, that is the life, man. You get to like tour and see the world and then also like be a Broadway star, like how awesome. And when I got here, you know, open calls for dancers are like incredibly brutal. Like they're very, it's very, a very rough life. Like if you're not familiar, just watch a chorus line. It pretty much gets to the point. So I was kind of having trouble finding where my niche was, like where I could book jobs. And again, life sort of just like rolled these things out for me that I sort of fell into these odd commercial companies. Uh, for example, I was in a circus in the Middle East for like six months. And wow. when I came back from that, one of my friends was in the Indian version of So You Think You Can Dance. It's called Just Dance. It's really a big deal in India and Southeast Asia. And so she was a finalist on that show and came back and then was kind of doing like a Bollywood meets America thing. So I was kind of involved with that off and on as well. And when I came back from my circus contract, 
she had linked up with another Bollywood Indian company based in New Jersey that was embarking on a world tour. And 10 days before they left, the director was like, we need more dancers. And I had just come back from a contract. So I literally hadn't unpacked my bags. And I was like, well, I can go. <laughs> and so I had jumped into this show in, in like seven or 10 days, something like that, like learned all the content of this Bollywood dance show in a style I had never done before. I remember I was like with a friend in Central Park learning like Bollywood dance for like hours on end. People would like come and try and like give us money or take photos and things. We're like, no, we're not busking, we're working. Yeah, there's nothing more to you than that. Not too long into this tour, one of our castmates very tragically and suddenly passed away. We came back to New York in the winter time, which is like even if you're the best and happiest person, the winter time can be rough here. And so um, we we're all kind of like down and depressed. And we'd also all subleased out, out our apartments. Oh, God. So we're like sleeping on friends' couches and like not really having jobs and stuff. So um, like everyone else in New York, I bartend uh, to su- support myself as an artist. And I was bartending at this tiny little Upper West Side bar. And um, the manager was like, hey, I heard you are a dancer. And I was like, yeah, I'm a dancer. He was like, well, we're trying to get entertainment in here, and we have this cabaret show on Tuesday nights. He's like, I'm not really pleased with it. I wonder if you could, like, take a look and, like, let me know what you think. And I was like, okay. So I show up, and I was, like, leaning against the wall in the staircase, like, kind of watching the show, and, like, it was not good. (laughs) Um, It was, like, rough. And so, you know, halfway through the first number, I looked at my manager, and I was like, I'll have a show for you next week. They didn't pay us. We passed a hat and collected tips and they did give us food and drinks. <laughs> and so, um, Tuesday nights for like two years, we performed at this little bar at like nine and 11 PM. And sometimes there was like one person there and we would do our little show for them. And over just by doing it over and over and over again, it continued to like build and grow. Someone came across a posting that the duplex was looking for cabaret acts to book and so we submitted to them and they were like, oh, you're a dance show. Like our space is too small. It'll never work. And we were like, uh, I mean, we dance in a really tiny bar. I'm sure we can make it work. And I remember there was a lot of back and forth that they were, everyone was really skeptical. They were like, oh, a dance show that's never going to work here. And our first show sold out and it was a big success. And that's basically been our home. Like we're kind of like the resident dance company there. I mean, it really sounds like it never worked. Oh, no way. Yeah. Sounds like it failed horribly. So that's how we got started. Again, it wasn't something that I was like, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to direct a dancing, singing cabaret show. <laughs> like that was not something I ever thought of, but it just sort of like fell in our, in our laps. So How'd you get to 54 Below? When we were still at said little bar on the Upper West Side, we kind of did a little adventure where we just sort of walked around Midtown to try and find places that like were our dream venues, you know? And we walked into 54 Below and I was like, oh my God, this place is beautiful and amazing. And um, it took us a good like two, two, three years after that to get there. But I think we just like reached out and negotiated. One of the great things about our show is we're kind of like an after theater. Yeah. We're like a nine oh, or nice. 11 o'clock time slot, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily the after midnight show. Like there's no nudity in our show. Like it's all artsy and entertaining, but we do really hold down that like late night slot quite well. So I think that was also appealing to 54 below that we we're like, Hey, we notice your 11 o'clock slot is not very full. <laughs> Has there ever been an an appeal or a draw to 
shift from that kind of transition part of the night to the the big show at eight? When we went to Chicago last year and we sort of, like I said, we have our monthly shows and then we do some touring as well over the years. We've done like some dinner theater at resorts in the Caribbean. Myself and the other director and an, another founder of the company, we're all from Colorado. And so once to twice a year, we do shows in Colorado. We have a pretty solid fan base there. So in Colorado, our show's at seven o'clock. You're and big, we, like New York out of town. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the homecoming, you know. Like, oh, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's like, I quote this quote all the time from Rent that like anywhere else you could possibly go after New York would be a pleasure cruise. And um, <laughs> uh, it's a, that's what it seems like when we go there. Not that we don't have to work hard. I mean, there's still its challenges, but you know, instead of like carrying the costumes on our back, like up and down subway stairs, we're like, oh my God, a car and a loading dock. Like what a dream. So when we went to Chicago last fall, we kind of shifted out of this, you know, monthly, hour-long show and took our femme fatale show and sort of built it as a like bigger theater production we rented out a theater for a week and did like a seven o'clock and a nine o'clock show and that was more of a like evening length cohesive show how did that change the work itself like did you approach it in a different way or is it more like tonal we spent some time mapping it out to be a loose plot Whereas normally in our shows, you saw the, I think the speakeasy social, yeah, speakeasy social. like it's very entertaining, which There's was amazing. By a the lot way, of, yeah. a lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening, yeah. but it's not necessarily like boy meets girl. They fall in love. Like there's not a, a right. like, linear plot like yeah. that. And so we kind of wove the material together to be a little more of a linear plot in Chicago that it was sort of in some ways hit on these issues that women have faced throughout history. Ah. Like, like one of the sections was like, don't tell me to smile. And then we took huh. some of our existing material and, you know, tweaked it and moved it to sort of fit with that theme. And so in any given show, how much material is a repurposing, like you mentioned doing in Chicago and how much is creating a new bit that goes in? At least 20% is new material in any given show. Sometimes 20 to 50% in any show. Um, the eighties show that we're doing this year is completely new. Everything will be new for the eighties show. Hmm. We kind of learned early on that when we were doing these monthly shows, we were trying to do like new stuff every month. And that became really exhausting on everyone really fast. So then it sort of became a like work smarter, not harder kind of situation. Definitely. And now we kind of you know, and then we divide and conquer. Like if the dancers, we sort of have like a dance company and a music company. And then, you know, we work individually and then we plug it together at dress rehearsal. And then we also have MCs and specialty acts like a magician, a drag queen, um, other people who sort of float in and out. The drag queen in September was extraordinary. She's such a queen. Um, that's the only person who ever gets naked in our show. Spoiler alert. <laughs> People are always like guilty pleasures. Ooh, hot. How much do you take off? And I'm like, you gotta come and see. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, some shows, like if the dancers have been out of town, say in Colorado or Chicago, and we've been working on this thing and then we come back and we have a next show, like maybe that next show, all the new content would come from singers. So that dancers can do what we've already been working on. And then the singers kind of provide the like something new for the audience. Got it. Or that vice makes sense. versa. You know, it's always a puzzle. That's actually my favorite part of it is like 
the puzzle of like figuring out casting and show order and like, when do you costume change? And like, okay, but can you do that number if you're wearing those shoes? What you're describing to me sounds much more like stand up or being a a band, like a rock band, (laughs) putting together different tours and different concerts than a traditional theater environment. And then when you think back to the environment in which Shakespeare and the other companies of his time were making plays, you were doing 26 new plays a year. So you're essentially doing two new of those every month. And it's like, well, that if that's true for you, I wonder how much of that goes into like these plays as well with the same archetypes like coming up again and again and like certain right. scenes almost like echoing from a play to a play or like, oh, wow, this fight seems like very similar to <laughs> this fight. <laughs> and like, yeah, I wonder if if you see any things that are more akin to what you do in the Elizabethan plays. I honestly never put that together before, but it it seems like really kind of cool, you know, like maybe as humans and artists, we sort of fall into these things without these patterns, without knowing it really. I did in one of your shows, pull something directly from the femme fatale show. What did you pull? Yeah. which Um, What did you pull? The Swan Lake thing where we do the arms up and down and up and down. I pulled that directly from the femme fatale show from our suffragette number. I also didn't like fully make that up. That's something that, you know, maybe I saw in a ballet and was like, oh, that's really clever. If I can do it with four people and tweak it to face this way, would it work for, uh, that was 12th night, right? Yeah. Again, with a working smarter, not harder, like, oh, you know what? That, that thing that I worked on three years ago with the high school that I used to teach at. You know, I can like flip through my notebook and be like, oh my God, that's exactly what they're looking for in this next show. So I can just sort of tweak a couple of things. And even though that was made for like guys and dolls and 14 year olds, like it could still work in this, in the changeling. Where do you keep ideas of movements that you want to use from show to show and production to production. I have a notebook. I'm getting to the end of the one that all of your material is. (laughs) Um, The first one that all of our material is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'll jot things down in there and whether it's with your company or if again, I've been hired to, you know, choreograph for some dance studio in middle America or for a yoga workshop that I'm teaching Everything that I like, like plan or create in that manner goes in the notebook. So then I can go back and flip at it. And I've done, I've done this little housekeeping thing before where if something comes to me when I'm on the train or something, I'll write it on a piece of paper and then staple it into the notebook Hmm. so that I do have this sort of like archive to look at. I've been doing that since I was in high school. So I still have ones from like my high school dance company and ones from college that like occasionally I'll flip back and be like, Oh my God, that Alanis Morissette thing was so funny. I should look at that again. Kind of shifting, but still a part of the creative process, especially for when I'm working with Shakespeare groups or like theater groups that aren't professional dancers, for example, I think the most important tool is to like really plan over plan and then be able to be like not using any of that in the moment and be like, oh, none of that at all. And Mm. that's where I think maybe without knowing it, all of the stuff I've written into that notebook has somehow stored in my brain. That oh, like, interesting. Oh, none of that is nothing that I planned is going to work because these 15 year olds like don't know their left foot from their right foot. So, uh, once in college, I learned that you could do a whole lot just chasseing in a circle. So let's try that. You know, maybe that was something I had 10 years ago in a notebook that all of a sudden popped in my head when I'm like, Oh, vengeance. 
Hmm. <laughs> when I first got introduced to QScripts, have you ever heard about QScripts? It's an Elizabethan rehearsal reality because there were no printers. Everything <laughs> you get, someone's writing out, right? And so you got to cast the 26 people. You're not writing out the whole play 26 times. So what they would get was they would get what was called a, a QScript or a part or a roll because it was rolled up on a giant thing. And all you get as an actor is a long dash and then the three words that cue your line and then your lines. That's all you have. Oh. And there's a lot of like question about did actors have to make their own from the one manuscript that the bookkeeper, who was the equivalent of the stage manager, had. There's a lot of different opinions on it, but I definitely find it more compelling to think that actors had to copy the math themselves. And so being a true psycho, I started doing for everything, like even just auditions. I had notebooks, like much like you describe, going through and writing out those cue scripts. And it was like I always thought that I was a terrible memorizer. And then as soon as I started doing that, I was it like changed everything. One of the things that I have found is really effective about a physical aspect. I will start over and over again, repeating them out loud, just getting the physical sense memory of saying them. We're going to go scene by scene, page by page. You forget a line or something is out of order. If it's not word perfect, we go back to the top of the page and we do it all over again because you're going to start to pay so much more attention what comes where and where's this line supposed to go, especially if there's a contrast in the monologue or in the line. You're going to pay attention to what word follows what word. If it means I get this wrong, we go back to the top of the page, we start all over again. In our 90s show, I rap Shoop. Oh my and, God. Yes, you do. And, when is your next performance of the 90s show? I, th- yeah. I don't think it's until, I think it's in November, actually. Do you have dates yet? Because I'm putting them on my yeah, calendar. Yeah, right? I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a card. I have a card. Yeah. Um, the whole reason I even had this idea is because when I was younger in college and just drunk enough, I would like wrap it on the bar. And nice. people were always impressed that I knew all the words, but I, Obviously, I'm a professional. I don't drink for shows. So I would get kind of nervous and start to fumble over the words and not know what verse was next. So kind of similar to what you were saying, our super fabulous and ultra talented music director was like, say all of the lyrics as fast as you can, Mm -hmm. like as fast as you can. Uh, So then when you're on stage, it's like slow and easy because you've already tricked your brain into doing it like lightning speed. Oh, I love that. Are there any tricks you have like that for learning dance moves? I mean, particularly for people like, I don't know, maybe a couple people sitting at this table who uh, aren't necessarily very experienced with it, but someone um, forces them to put dance into productions that they're doing multiple times a year. Yeah, that's... Uh, in that in that oddly... In that hypothetical yet oddly specific <laughs> metaphor, were I in that predicament that you're describing... Which I hope I never shall be. Right. Because natu- I'm just naturally gifted on my feet. But for other people, for other less graceful people. Yeah, I mean, also kind of what you were describing about saying it over and over again or starting from the top of the page is muscle memory, just the basic mm-hmm. idea of muscle memory. So that's something that I definitely do when I work with through grooms is, okay, so we learn this step. Like, let's say it's like, I'll use the same thing I said before, like a, a chasse, kickball change, pivot turn. 
And so I'll break it down and I'll have everybody do chasses over and over and over and over and over and over again until they're like bored and I see it on their faces. And then I'm like, okay, next thing we're going to do kickball change. We're going to do it over and over and over and over again until they're like, oh my God, this lady is crazy. It's so dumb. And then we do pivot turn, pivot turn, pivot turn, pivot turn until everybody, I can see that everybody's got it. They've got the rhythm of it. They have the feet of it. Then I will start to weave it together and then drill that over and over again until it's in your body. Mm. Like if you, you should probably fact check the science on this, but I think if you do something like eight, t- eight to 10 times in your body, like your body remembers it, it patterns your muscles. Is it's, it probably, it's probably more than that. It wouldn't So now the way that I learn lines is I record the cue and then record my line in this app called line learner. And then I learn it in like little AB sections, and then putting them together. And every time I learn a new thing, I literally do it eight times and then move on to the next one. And it's now become the fastest way I've found to learn lines. Interesting. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I generally approach teaching movement, especially to people who are not very comfortable moving. Um, and something you may have noticed I also do um, on a first rehearsal in any group that I'm working with is I sort of test the group. Like I let, I'll like, do like I just said, we'll do the chasses, we'll do the ball changes. And these are things that we're going to come back to and do later. But I'm just seeing like what you're comfortable with and what your dance skills are. And then I always open it up to like, okay, now wow me, show me what you can do. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes where some of the best stuff comes from. You know, the quiet little kid in the back who has like a tiny little role will just bust out like a handspring. And then somebody else will be like, oh, well, I can do that too. And then all of a sudden, what I never even dreamed to put in my notebook for this big song and dance number is like something huge that I couldn't have ever, you know, imagined myself. So that's another thing I kind of do to help people feel comfortable is like, I see what they can do and then start to weave that in because dancing makes people nervous. <laughs> Does it really? I mean, I've, 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 I've <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I've, I've noticed that, that a lot of people are like, Oh, it's dance day. Oh God. I'm so nervous. It's dance day. And that's like all ages, all groups. I know for me, the the hard part about choreography or the thing that makes me uneasy, for the most part, I don't have too much of an issue when it comes to dance. If, if I'm at a, a party or a wedding and it's just sort of like doing my own thing because all, every, all of the movement is coming from me, what's, what's difficult for me is to take choreography that was devised by someone else and implement it for myself because it's essentially training my body to move in a way that is foreign. What are some of the things that you use to help people get over that mental hurdle? This is something I did when I was younger in ballets is after you've set a bunch of choreography, like taking a few minutes to let everyone write their own notes about it. Whatever makes sense to you about what we just learned, write it down. Because dance, what's tricky about dance is there's not a cohesive way to notate dance. Really? As like, this is how you document dance. The way music, there's the bars and time signatures and notes and keys and chords, right? And mm-hmm. we all, all, all over the globe can agree that like this is, once you write a song, you put it in this format. Mm. That doesn't really exist for dance. There are a few ways to notate, but they're very complex and you have to have like a doctorate level education to be able to notate or read it. Wow. So wow. it's not really accessible to people. So that's, that's a tool I like to use too is like, okay, we just, barfed out all this choreography. 
go write it down. However, it is that you are going to remember left foot, right foot, chasse, whatever. And if it's the words I gave you, then that's cool. If it's something else that you learned in like middle school, you know, like maybe you didn't never called it a chasse, maybe in your mind, it's still a gallop. Then you can write that down. I remember the first, I think it was in much ado when you like gave us that for, cause we only had like an hour to do all the much ado stuff and somehow did. And I remember that like we took time to do that. And first my, my producer brain was like, and then I wrote it down. I was like, Oh, 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 I'll actually be able to do this now. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> going, going back to something Daniel was talking about in terms of dancing as an individual being easier versus dancing as a character and how that foreign movement is, uh, or can be more difficult to learn when you're choreographing in theater versus choreographing for guilty pleasures. Is there a difference? Like, do you, how much do you take character into consideration either in addition to, or instead of an actor's natural tendencies? I'd say 50, 50, like the character versus the actor. Because let's say, let's say like Juliet, for example, let's say the character Juliet is like the best dancer at the ball, but the actor cast as Juliet doesn't know her left foot from her right foot. So in that case, let's say that then I might just say, okay, Juliet dance like you're going to dance at your parent, like your sister's wedding. And then I would kind of manipulate other things around it so that she's still fulfilling what the character would be, but movement that works for her. Which of course also makes sense because she's the like golden child of this incredibly powerful family. So right. even if she's not a good dancer, everyone at that ball is going to be making yes. her think that she's a good dancer. Oh, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when you're choreographing stuff for guilty pleasures, <laughs> how is that, how similar is that to doing it for a pre-written character and how much of it is like, let's just do this thing that you're really good at doing? Well, I mean, the reason we call it guilty pleasures is because it, it it is our guilty pleasures. It's all the things that as professional dancers, we never had a chance to do. You know, like I was hired in a circus. I was hired in a Bollywood show. I was in a Turkish musical, but like I never got to do jazz dance, which is like what I'm most trained in hmm. or musical theater, which is again, like my like bread and butter from youth and college. Likewise, my partner is an incredibly talented tap dancer and was never hired to tap dance. So that's why we call it guilty pleasures. And in that way, I think that's still the motivation for a lot of our content is that like, oh, I know it's an 80s show, but I've had this idea. So for the 80s show, I really want to do a blacklight dance. I really want to do something where like maybe there's like one sleeve or one leg or like one hand in something white that like pops for a blacklight dance. And that could be like where we start. And then say, oh, 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 you know, I was thinking about your blacklight dance and I found this song that would be great for that. And then from there, start to build like the content. And I mean, this is something I really love about choreography. It's similar to painting, I think, in a lot of ways that you can start from anywhere. Sometimes it's a costume piece. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I found this great costume. Actually, a solo that I do in the Femme Fatale show, I call it the Suffragette solo, a I created this solo after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings because I was Mm. very angry (laughs) and I kept thinking to myself, like, this is not what the suffragettes like fought for, Mm. you know, a hundred years later, like, what would they think of this? What, Mm. what, what would they say about this? And so I kind of made a solo based on that idea and 
I didn't really intend it to be a suffragette from the beginning, but I had this costume piece that I thought was a Mary Poppins costume. I found it hmm. like a warehouse and it was like a high-waisted skirt and a ruffly shirt. And then as I started to have this idea over and over again about like, what would the suffragettes say? I was like, oh, I can use that Mary Poppins costume. And then it was like, oh, and if I put it with my can-can boots, which I use for like musical theater classes, like, oh, now the costume's there. And then started kind of, then I found a piece of music and started of kind of, kind of working with some movement phrases and manipulating that. And then... And at the end of the solo, I was like, I need like a button. I need it to end somehow. And one of my friends was like, you should have a picket sign. And your sign should say equality. And all they see is equality from the beginning. And then at the end of your solo, you flip it to say now on the backside. And I was like, ah, brilliant. That's what I love about choreography is that it, they can, it can come together in this strange order. Sometimes I like find the piece of music and I like write out like four, eight counts of turns and then four, eight counts of moving. And then on this word, we're going to do this, you know, and I'll come in with like a full phrase choreographed of like every movement on every count and what you're doing where, and then, then from there, like manipulate, I teach them all of it. And then we do some like, okay, on this part, you're going to do the same thing, but facing back and do some sort of basic composition tools of like patterns and the thing in dance it's called like a roll off or a cannon of like you do it you do it you do it down a line that's something i really love about choreography is it can it can start from anywhere when you are going down these different paths do you have moments where you get lost and if so how do you find the road again I, like any artist, sometimes I'll finish the dance and be like, wow, that is trash. <laughs> like <laughs> That is not at all what I had in my head, and I don't know where I went wrong. And that has happened, where sometimes it's like, it's too late. You just got to put it on stage and then either go back and fix it or like never put it on stage again. Hmm. <laughs> that's And that's happened. There's a specific dance that a few years ago, I was like, this is a great idea. And then I put it on and I was like, this is awful. <laughs> what was I thinking? I mean, I guess that's where I just sort of fall back on like those old notebooks, like I was talking mm -hmm. about, you know, like my past experiences, like that's where I'll start to kind of, when I get stuck or lost, I, that's when I turn to doing research. I'll go on YouTube videos and be like, okay, let's say guys and dolls, I'm choreographing like the hot box girls number. Well, I'm obviously not the first person who's choreographed this number. So like, let me see how high schools across America have tackled this. And then, you know, maybe like eight videos in, I'll be like, oh, well, that's really clever. I'd never thought of that. How could I maybe use that to problem solve? I still have a few books that I will turn to, you know, composition for dance or creative movement. There's a couple of other books, but sometimes I'll pull them off the shelf and just kind of aimlessly flip and be like, oh, cool. That helps solve my problem. When you come up with a piece and you think to yourself, oh, this is going to be really good. And then you put it out there and it's like, wow, this was really not. <laughs> How difficult is it for you to look at something that you created with a critical eye and go, okay, what I thought about and then what I actually created, here's where the two of those things split. Is that hard to do with, with your own work? Not really. It's kind of what you mentioned actually about being like your own hardest critic. And so, you know, sometimes even before it gets to the stage, I can be like, this is, this is awful. To me, it's less of like being critical and more and more of just being accepting that that's like part of the process. 
we have what we call like a 1.0, right? Like we're just going to get it on the stage in a costume with like three people, but this is the 1.0. Mm-hmm. And then next time we do this show, like we're going to add two more dancers and maybe some on and off exits and some changes to make it a little like fluff it up a little more. Because like, I think what sometimes happens is like we have a deadline, right? So we can see that like, oh, that's not realistic to make that happen this time around. Mm. But even while we're working on the this time around, we work with a great team of very talented people that can be like, oh, in the 11.0 version, <laughs> when we're in the arena tour, we want the piano to fly in from the ceiling and then there'll be lasers and smoke. And we kind of like joke about that stuff. But then in practice, it sort of ends, it ends up working. Do you ever get to a point where something you've created to you feels done? There, there are some numbers where when we put them on stage, they're just like so great. They get such a good response that I'm like, well, I don't. I don't want to tweak anything. I think that was great. My mind always thinks about, even if I'm perfectly pleased with choreography and staging, I mean, we perform in like smaller venues, right? So my brain is always thinking like, like I said, like, what does the arena tour look like? You know, like, what does it look like in that big of a space? So my brain is always thinking of that on like the production level side. But there, there are times definitely that like choreographically, I'm like, yeah, that's it. It's done. That's probably 10% of the time. More often than not, I'm still thinking, how can we make it better? And it might not even be better. It's just how to how does it keep evolving and staying fresh? Because that's something I I strive for is to keep the audience engaged, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I'll do really cheesy shit oh, in a dance that I think is like really basic movement specifically to feed to the audience. Well, it's another reason why it's been so perfect to work with you, particularly in, in Twelfth Night, where we really use the dance as a lot of the audience interactive moments. Because it is, I mean, it's 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 so fun when like they just pick up the cue yeah. and go into it. Is there then for you on that 10% that you feel are complete? Is there is there like a click that happens that make you feel like, oh yeah, I want this every time? Or is that completeness based on what you described later in terms of wanting it to stay alive and keep exploring, is that completeness a kind of like complete and now archived? Like I'm done with that? Is it almost like a death? It's individual to like each piece, but yeah, I think both of both of those things happen. Yeah, there are there are some things that it's like, oh, okay, we did we did that. It's done. In, in fact, I'm thinking specifically there's a finale piece that we've used since our very first show. And I choreographed it for like the first show that we did and just kind of like barfed it out, got it out there. We staged it. We did it. And after a few months, I was like, I'm over this. Like, I am tired of this dance. I hate it now. Hmm. Like, I don't want to do it anymore done. Like we did it. Let's move on. Mm. And literally the week that we were having that combo of like, yeah, I'm over this number. Like, let's do something else as our finale. Um, a friend came to the show and was like, God, I love that number. You got to always do that. It just hypes up the crowd. And it's like, so good. And like love that number. And at time and time again, when we're like, God, we're so over that number. Right. People will like book us specifically for that number. Sometimes I'm proved wrong when I'm like, put it in the vault, leave it in there to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a really good example of that, we just did a Valentine's Day show and we used to do this dance when we were at Laura in our like 1.0 show. <laughs> that was to Lily Allen's, uh, th- oh, thank you. And it, we used to pull somebody up on stage and put them in a chair. And so they would think that they were going to get some like sultry lap dance. And then we would do this Lily Allen. Th- oh, 
vengeance. Do dance, like uh. breakup dance. And like have not even looked at it in six years. And then we booked a Valentine's show and we we're like, well, let's take that out of the vault. One of the things that I've been so impressed with is the ability to choreograph things that can then be manipulated by the reality of the moment in each given performance. Mm. A, how the fuck oh, do you do that? <laughs> and B, is that your default way of working? Because I feel like there was no like transition period for it when you came in. Like I felt like it just instantly went into that. Like this is a thing that can be that can be slotted in these ways and you can now use this as a character to do this to the other character and however that times out will work for the dance. You may have noticed that when you start a project or when you say like, oh, we're going to work on um, Twelfth Night, I tend to kind of bombard you with some questions. So that's kind of how I get to that point is like, that's where I start to ask the things of like, how many people are in it? Who are the characters? What part of this plays a role in the plot? What are our space confines? Where is the audience sitting? That's what, and then I open to my notebook and I take all these notes. And then I start to stew on it and I think, oh, okay. Or like, so, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, we're going to play this live music. So then I'll start to listen to, what was the one, the Bruno Mars, the Castle in the, Castle in the Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. then I like listen to that one over and over again. For Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. And some ideas pop into my head for that one in particular. I was like, oh, I really want it to be this movement. And then you can move that movement however you want. You can move it through the space. You can use that movement to move the plot, but just always use that movement. So I guess it really comes from like the initial stages of planning where I, I kind of have like an archive, a bag of questions that I always ask, like right out the gate from the other directors and producers. I had a very brilliant professor of composition and choreography in college that said, um, creativity thrives in confines. So if you say Hmm. that we're confined to this space and this character and this music and this costume and this facing and this lighting, that actually helps me more to like kind of hone in on the vision, you know? So it's not all these like scattered crazy things. I can start to like shape it into one thing. I'll always, I always ask like right out the gate too, like, what are the costumes? Like, I, I want to know right away, like, are there long skirts and dresses? Because that could be something that we start to like choreograph. Like you hold your skirt, you know, in sort of like a flamenco manner or something right. or like, oh, okay, there's long dresses. So that limits a whole bunch of movement. I'm reminded of the ballroom scene in Romeo and Juliet where we played around with changes in tempo, how it went from uh, like a raucous party to sort of more classical waltz style of music. And one of the things that I always thought was mind-blowing is because you only came in for what like two dance rehearsals (laughs) and there was always a moment every time they would actually kiss it was always seeming to be that people were extending in such a like in a very big and expressive way and the violin would hit this high note at exactly the right moment and it's everything sort of seemed to align perfectly and then immediately break apart. And I kept going back and looking at this and being like, how did she do this in 
two rehearsals. I still can't figure it out <laughs> to this day, but it's one of my favorite pieces of choreography that I think I've ever seen. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. that was a really fast and furious rehearsal <laughs> process. Um, I remember like after the first rehearsal, everyone was looking at me like, she's crazy. This is never going to work. <laughs> and uh, and I, I remember like going home and like flipping open that notebook and being like, all right, what do I need to alter and change? And it, you'll notice sometimes at the end of rehearsals, I'll take videos mm -hmm. so that I can mm -hmm. go home and be like, ah, this part's working. I'm going to expand on that. And I, th I think that's exactly what happened on that one. That at the first rehearsal, I felt like there was like a lot of tension and people were stressed and like some things that I had thought weren't really working out with the live music. And so I went, opened up like a dance composition book and was like, all right, look at your tools. Like what tools do I have? And in that case, it was simplifying it from hmm. whatever I had mapped out. I needed to kind of like break away and just go to the skeleton. Also, not to leave out a very important part of that beautiful moment is the cohesiveness of the cast. Like that, I can't take credit for that. That's you all syncing up and trusting each other and watching each other and feeling each other. And that's mm -hmm. something that you can't, you can't really teach. Like, but that's like, in my opinion, the magic of live theater. That's yeah. what makes it beautiful is when oh, you yeah. get all these bodies that just kind of know out of the corner of my eye, oh, they're about to palm, they're about to kiss, so now I'm going to slow down over here. This week on Twitter, Alice Bloomer, who is at Alice D. Bloomer, says, At Rude Grooms has a great podcast, albeit about the industry in the States, but many crossovers and very inspiring. Thank you for recommending us, Alice. Also this week, Amber Elby, who is at Amber Elby on Twitter, says, At This Would Know Podcast is made by some theater folks and is full of positivity. Thank you, Amber. It really means the world to us when our listeners recommend us uh, to other friends who are in need of something to lift their spirits in these really bonkers times. If you would like to share a thought on this week's episode or ask a question, you can always tweet at us at this would know or at rude grooms. You can Instagram at us at this would know or at rude grooms, and you can record an audio sample, email it to us, and especially now, we just might play it on the podcast. That email address is this would know at rudegrooms.com. Daniel? This week, my recommendation is actually the app cast k-a-s-t this is a social hangout app where you're able to hang out digitally with your friends during this time of social distancing last night my friends and i got together on the cast app and one of my friends was broadcasting his screen and we all watched the movie cats together i had never seen the movie cats I feel like I need to talk to somebody now, having seen the movie Cats, but we were all able to get together, about a half a dozen of us, uh, through this app from our respective living rooms while everyone's practicing social distancing and hang out and drink wine and wonder what in the ever-loving oh, we were watching on the screen. And that was all thanks to the Cast app. It is totally free. And they are not sponsoring this recommendation. So that's how you know how good it is. 
Monty, what do you got? This week, I'm going to plug a project that has been started by Rob Miles, who is at Rob Miles on Twitter. It's called The Show Must Go Online. Rob is bringing together artists from around the world, a different group every week, uh, groups that include professional artists as well as amateur performers and just general Shakespeare lovers. Anyone can sign up to be a part of the database. And each week, they do an unabridged reading of a play by Shakespeare going in the order order in which some people believe those plays were written. I had the great honor of being a part of the ensemble for the first weeks the show must go online. I played the Duke in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And you can watch that entire performance on YouTube. Um, Friend of the podcast, Ben Crystal, does the introduction, and it was so much fun. This week on Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, they will be doing The Taming of the Shrew. So I'm excited to see what that's like. So if If you need a little more Shakespeare in your life, go check that out. If you need a little more Shakespeare coming out of your mouth, go online, sign up, and be in one of them. The show must go online with Rob Miles, who is at Rob Miles on Twitter, or you can go to his website, robmiles.co.uk slash the show must go online. Well... This was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to keep the conversation going on Patreon, but for you listening to the podcast, this is where we wrap it up for you. Yep. So for podcast listeners, Bridget, yeah. um, how can they follow you? How can they follow Guilty Pleasures? Uh, how can they book you in Guilty Pleasures? Ooh, all great questions. So to follow me as an individual, Instagram's the best way to do that. It's uh, Bridget underscore Bows. As far as Guilty Pleasures Cabaret is concerned, you can find us at GP Cabaret. That's on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all social medias at GP Cabaret. And our website is guiltypleasurescabaret.com. So all of our shows for the entire year are posted on the website. If you follow us on social media, we're constantly, you know, promoting and posting for our next shows through all of those places. You could direct message us through social media, or you could email us for bookings. We do a lot of events parties, bar mitzvahs, weddings, things. Um, We do custom acts for that too. Uh, All of that, again, you can contact us through our website or our email. The email's info at guiltypleasurescabaret.com. And the website, again, is guiltypleasurescabaret.com. And that's also all in the show notes. Yes. That is going to conclude this week's episode of This Wooden O. Thank you all so much for listening. My name is Daniel Kemper. And I'm Monty. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. And you can find me, I'm going to get it right this week, <laughs> on Twitter, I am Montgomery Sutton. And no. On... <laughs> no. No? No. Your name is too long on Twitter. I thought it was too long on Instagram. No. Remember, Instagram has the extra hard drive space. Oh, God. Will you just tell them what (laughs) my handles are? You can find Monty on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto, because like he says, his name is too damn long. (laughs) And you can find him on Instagram at Montgomery Sutton, because they have the extra hard drive space. (laughs) Who knew? Bye, everybody. Bye. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. 
Learn more at RudeGrooms.com or follow us on social media at RudeGrooms and at This Wooden Ode.